Welcome to episode 94, Supporting Loved Ones Through COVID-19 Deaths, Critical Clinical Considerations, featuring Jill Johnson-Young, Licensed Clinical Social Worker, by Clearly Clinical, Learn, Grow, Shine. Hello to our listeners. Today, I've asked Jill Johnson-Young, licensed clinical social worker, to join me again on the topic of deaths from COVID-19. Jill joined us a couple of weeks ago to talk specifically about grief and the pandemic. And now we're talking more specifically about how we clinicians can support others and support ourselves as we contend with the deaths of people related to the pandemic. Um, Jill, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I hope we're going to have another great conversation. Um, Jill, so for those people who didn't hear our first podcast, why don't you tell us about yourself um, and how you came to have the specialization of working within the grief field? So um, as an LCSW, I have had a career that includes uh, working for hospice for well over a decade in two states. And I also did a lot of grief coordination and grief provision with hospices, including uh, pediatric hospice, which was one of my specialties. And I was the first social worker for the Inland AIDS Project um, in the very beginning of that pandemic, uh, which was all grief all the time because there was no treatment at that point. Um, and since we opened our practice, my specialty has been grief and loss. I've uh, lectured across the country and internationally about it and trained therapists in doing um, grief in a way that really is solution focused, not grief is forever. On a personal note, I've been widowed twice. Um, my first wife was um, very close to her hospice nurse and um, she asked her to come back and she became my second wife. And the mortician that I met making arrangements for my first wife and became a friend and helped with the caring for my second wife is now my current wife and she's a mortician. So I've been married to an ER nurse, a hospice nurse, and now a mortician who's been deployed for the virus twice now. So um, grief and loss is what I do and what we do. <laughs> it's how we make our family run. You have such a unique perspective on this and have uh, so much experience in something that is so novel and new for the majority of us. So why don't we just jump right in? Um, where do you think we should start, Jill? You know, I'm hearing from a number of corners um, I'm hearing from therapists who are unsure how to wade into how to do grief with the pandemic and how to help people who are thoroughly traumatized by the losses they've experienced because these losses are so different from other deaths. Um, and I'm hearing from um, as well first responders who are traumatized by how to take care of um, the folks they normally are able to take care of but can't right now, um, and therapists who work with those folks. Um, I think we also need to cover all the parts of how we help people who are having these losses so that they feel truly able to honor their dead and to celebrate their lives and not to minimize the losses because this pandemic has been going on now here in this country since February that we know of. We know now it was happening before that. And um, having seen Stacy just get back from DMORT 
and all the people that are still waiting for burial in New York alone, those families are all adding extra trauma to their losses because they can't bury their dead. And when they do, they can't be present or not enough of them can be present. Funerals are supposed to include hugs and we can't do that anymore. And as a grief therapist, I do groups in person and with hugs at the end. And I literally can't reach out and touch my clients anymore. So there's a lot to cover. Where should we start? Let's talk about when you are about to meet with someone who has had a COVID loss. Because not all of us have been trained in grief. In fact, the vast majority of us have not. And that's an issue. We have had training in grad schools, some recently, in a little more um, realistic um, training. But most of us heard about five stages and... um, Grief is forever, and let's help people um, understand that they're going to grieve forever. And even making grief uh, something we diagnosed on the DSM, when grief is actually not by itself uh, a mental health disorder. Complicated grief can be. My goal is for us as a therapist community to make COVID losses not complicated grief to understand that we have to do some extra work and dig in fast so that we can get people through these losses, but get them through it in a timely manner so it doesn't have to become complicated. Does that make sense? It does. So where do we as therapists uh, set the tone? How do we start in working with clients that we know um, have had a recent loss from the pandemic? Let me use me as an example. That might be easiest. When I have a COVID client, COVID loss client coming, what typically happens is my secretarial staff will put something related to COVID on the calendar so I know what I'm dealing with, or at least recent loss. That way I'm ready to absorb that person as a grief therapist, not as your typical everyday Joe. Now I am known for having a sense of humor and I am known for being a little blunt and my clients find me because of that. So if that is how you operate, and your new clients find you, they're looking for who you are and your personality style on that site today profile or that video you made. They're looking for who you are. They want your authentic self to meet them and help them in their grief. So I'm going to meet them as that person, but I'm going to meet them online. Um, and I, I know this is just a podcast, but I will meet them like I am right now. I've got candles that are lit. I've got um, a big furry blanket available. Um, I always have a dog on my lap because we have dogs in the office. I have dogs here at home. They're all poodles. I have dogs in all my kids' grief books. In my grief books, poodles go to funerals and go to cemeteries just because that's how I operate. That's how I think the world should be. So I meet them with a sense of, okay, this is all online, but you're seeing what comfort should be and safety should be. And I'm wearing comfortable clothes so that it doesn't feel stiff. I don't know a single grieving person who wants to see a therapist in a suit and tie or a business suit. They want to feel like they can look at you and relax. And they want to know that you are going to help them. So if you've never done grief before, please, God, don't tell them that. That's about as helpful as a hospice nurse walking in and saying, I've never seen someone die before. Neither of those are ever good moments, and I've seen them both. You want a sense of confidence, and you need to be ready to hear. 
just listen, which is what I do with all grief clients. But with COVID losses, these are folks who were not present for the death. Typically, when a new grief client comes in and I say, tell me your story, what they're going to tell me about is sitting with their loved one as they were dying, preparing for their death because they knew it was coming, or that knock on the door and it was an instant death because there was an accident. Very rarely in our history have, had, have we had people who were seriously ill in hospitals, on respirators, where family couldn't be with them, where all they could do was fear and imagine and see newsreels that were showing them really pretty awful videos and interviews with hospital staff who are saying they're exhausted and this is awful. Some of them are getting those moments on video if the hospital's equipped and the hospital staff have time and you know they can say goodbye, but when someone's on a respirator, they have to be sedated. People can't tolerate a respirator tube down their throat into their lungs and be awake. So yes, they're saying goodbye. And we know from all the research that that person can hear them. We know that there's some recognition, but that's a different death. And so we've got folks who are coming to us after a COVID loss who have not been there, have had their imagination go wild, are really pretty sure that it was not a pretty death and can't be comforted in person. They were called to be told that their loved one had died. They weren't in the ICU waiting room. Somebody knocked on their door and then backed up six to 10 to 12 feet. And many of them have been exposed themselves so they can't go out for another 14 days. It's, it's this whole new world of grief from a distance. So when I'm meeting with someone who's had a COVID loss, what, I'm, what, I t- what I say is, tell me your story. Tell me what you're most fearful about. Tell me what you're having bad dreams about. Tell me what's scaring you or has caused you the most stress. That will bring out all of that trauma. And that's where you need to start with a COVID loss in my very humble opinion. (laughs) You bring uh, such grace and steadfastness to this topic that is so scary and so heavy. Um, We're talking right now about individuals that have already had a COVID death. Does your recommendation change for the people who are anticipating it? Um, I know in my own life, I've had uh, people close to me that have had the inkling for anywhere from a number of hours to a number of days that that family member was not going to pull through. Um, What are your recommendations for therapists that see uh, clients in that really weird space where they can't see their family member, but there is some likelihood uh, that the family member is going to die? Twofold. Um, Because I do dementia as well, I work with a lot of families who have people who have dementia who are in care facilities in those instances where their loved ones are going to die, but in that skilled nursing facility or that memory care facility, I suggest that they make that call to that facility and see if their loved one can be moved to a window so that they can at least see them and say goodbye by cell phone, but outside. And that's worked sometimes. Um, I've seen people who've hired cherry pickers to do that in cities where the facilities are are, uh, multiple story 
I'm in Riverside. Most of ours are single story. We're still spread out out here. Um, if someone's in the hospital, I suggest that they try and find a way to get someone in that hospital to lift the phone or lift the, the iPad or whatever that hospital has for tech. In many hospitals, chaplains are the ones doing it. Sometimes it's the respiratory therapists. It doesn't have to be the nursing staff because they are stretched. And I know as we're making this recording, in some areas, the pandemic is decreasing, but we've got second waves getting ready to start across the country because of events, both Memorial Day and afterward. And we're gonna have lots more people exposed. So we're gonna have these crowds again in hospitals and we need to be prepared for that. So that and I suggest that they start writing a letter, talking to their loved one about what they're always gonna remember about them and what they've meant to them and try to get that to someone at the hospital who can read it to them. Because that's what people who are dying really need to hear. How am I going to live on when I'm not here? What parts of me are gonna keep going? I'm going to be in my grandchild who looks like me and behaves in a naughty way like I used to when I was a kid. Um, I'm going to live on by being the, the person who always had trouble with parallel parking. And I gave that to my kid, right? I'm the person who taught whoever to cook a certain family dinner that's gone on for generations. And now they're going to take it with them. Whatever parts of us that our loved one is going to has given us and is going to continue to occupy in us. They need to know that because those of us who are surviving them are their legacy, not the stuff they've done, the people that they have touched. I really appreciate those two pieces of guidance to try to work with the hospital or figure out a way to support the client to see the person that's in the hospital and also that idea of writing a letter. I can already hear how you're laying the groundwork to reduce the likelihood of that complicated death. So why don't we go there next? Why don't you talk about what it means to have a complicated death and how that impacts the experience of suffering by the person that's lost a loved one? Complicated grief um, is defined a number of ways by various people in the grief field. Um, most folks, it uh, involves uh, multiple deaths that have occurred over time and that those deaths have not been resolved at each turn. And so when there's a ma another major loss, all those deaths come rushing forward. With COVID losses, that could be the case, but we've got the opportunity for complicated grief just in the, the trauma that people are absorbing, not knowing what's happening or how fast the death is occurring or that they can't get across the country. Because yes, you can get on a flight right now, but do you really want to? And is it going to do any good? And can you afford to be quarantined there then for another 14 days before you get back on a flight? So what I do to, to try and head off things getting complicated is I immediately start addressing with my clients, first, the trauma, and second, what things didn't you get to say? What things didn't you get to apologize for? What things didn't they get to apologize for that you really think you were owed an apology for? Because we all have our foibles and we all have things we could have done better. And that's the stuff that holds us back. And then I also try to bring in what, what's the fear? 
What's causing you fear right this very moment? Fear is a number one byproduct of grief. The second byproduct is losing other people who are supposed to be your support team. When there is a death, there are also deaths of other relationships. And it doesn't matter what the death is. It doesn't matter how the death occurs. It doesn't matter who the relationship is. There are people who are going to disappear from your life when you need them most. And right now with COVID, we already have separations. We can't go to the house and sit with people. You know, for Jewish, we, Jewish, we can't go sit Shiva. If we're um, planning to go to a visitation, we can't do that because only 10 people are allowed if the funeral home will allow it. And many of them are not. So I try to get those things started right away while allowing the client to tell me their story so that we can start heading those things off at the pass. And then if there are prior deaths that were not fully dealt with, we can bring those things into what did, what was left over from those relationships that's influencing this loss. But if we don't finish what didn't get done, and with COVID, lots didn't get done. Because the way a COVID loss generally goes is, you start to get sick and then there's a little bit of a better. And then for those who end up with that storm that occurs, that takes over your lungs and then the rest of your body systems, it's a super fast crash and a race to the hospital and then hoping that they come through it. The vast majority so far have not. We've got some experimentals going, but we don't have people surviving once they're on a vent in large numbers. So there isn't enough time. And you've had that hopeful moment too, which makes it even harder. You talk about complicated grief. Can you speak a little bit more about the consequence of complicated grief and what that's like in the lived experience for someone that is, um, as you said, like either going through another death that's compounded on top of other kind of unresolved deaths um, or a death that doesn't follow the normal progression, allowing us to have kind of standard mourning. Like you said, we won't be able to say goodbye. We won't be able to have a funeral. If you're Jewish, you can't sit Shiva. There are all of these cultural implications that go by the wayside. Um, what's a consequence of complicated grief? Complicated grief causes all kinds of additional grief symptoms. Typically in grief, we're hit emotionally, cognitively, physically. Grief causes fatigue. Grief causes brain confusion. It really does. It, it makes your brain just not function. Um, it makes your emotions sort of hit all over the place. And it typically makes all of us much more easily frustrated, much quicker to anger. Uh, but complicated grief exacerbates all that, causes nightmares in large numbers. Um, for some of these folks, there's actually PTSD from these losses. And then we're dealing with PTSD treatment as well, because just the fear of what their loved one is going through is enough to trigger that. So complicated grief can also trigger someone who's already prone to depression into an, another cycle of depression. If not, it can bring someone into more of a dysthymic state. You know, not truly maybe diagnosable as dysthymia, although that's probably what we have to use in order to um, make an insurance claim work. But uh, to be blunt, but it does. It feels like the world is just never going to get better. The sun doesn't shine as much. 
people aren't good enough. I did something wrong that caused them to die. All these thoughts that are not really rational, but feel like there needs to be a reason for what happened. Right? And if there's been multiple deaths, what caused that? They did some research after um, the HIV pandemic in the um, 80s and 90s. And what they found was the people who really did well with multiple deaths there were the ones who could really roll with the punches and had a strong support system. They had enough resilience, inner resilience, as well as enough of an ability to reach out and grasp the people they needed that they could get through one death after another and grieve it while they were absorbing the next death. There are some people who really get some kind of secondary gain from continuing to grieve. Those are the folks who make grief therapists absolutely nuts, let me just say. Um, I talked to a chaplain once at a local hospital and he said, I'm, I'm quitting doing any grief groups for the next six months. I just, I can't do it anymore. So that's weird because everyone loves your grief groups. I trust you. I send people to you. And he said, no, because we have some who come in and get better. And now we've got this contingent of like six or eight people who will never, ever leave. They come to one group after another. They keep cycling through because they identify with being the griever. That's their entire identity now. And that's also part of complicated grief and I don't want that for anybody. When we talk about complicated grief, what's the alternative? If we're able to play this out in an optimal way, if you will, for an entirely awful situation with a pandemic, what does the opposite of complicated grief look like? What do we call it? How long does it take? Um, what does it look like? For me, no matter what the loss is, um, optimal grief is using grief as a time to understand what's happened, work through the trauma. And with COVID, there's a lot of trauma work. Work through what's left in that relationship. Reorganize. Figure out where you want to go, even though you don't want to go there. Because, And if you tell a griever, I know you didn't choose this new life, but you've got it. So let's create it. But I understand this is not your choice. This is not something you would want to do. I'm not celebrating with you that your loved one died. But your loved one did die, so we need to figure out where you're going from here. And then moving them into that next life. But with all of the other stuff finished. And in a way that they feel confident that they can introduce the person who died to people in their new life who never met them. In a way that doesn't cause them pain, um, allows them to celebrate that that person was there and part of their life, um, and also doesn't generate sympathy or hostility from them when someone gets sympathetic. Because for grievers, when you say, oh yeah, my, my so-and-so died, regardless of what the relationship is. So I say, yeah, I've been widowed twice. And instantly, instantly people look at me with this look on their face, like, oh, I'm so sorry, that must be so awful. That was years ago. It, it was awful then. It's not awful now. You know, now I can tell you about who they were and what quirks they had and what fun we had, right? It's not awful anymore. And that's 
having been through it and moved into the next life because they're still with me just in a different way. Um, I too have had some very significant losses during my life and I, I called it the head tilt, <laughs> the, how you doing? Mm-hmm. Um, the notorious head tilt, but they don't really want to hear how you're doing, especially when you're new in grief because it's so awful and it's so heavy and, and people feel powerless. So that, and it's scary for them. That leads me to my next question. Um, We as therapists, uh, we value having impact, we value change, we value um, helping clients recover and heal. And in the throes of grief, it can feel like we as therapists are powerless. Oh, no, this is where we have our best power. This is where we do our best work. And with COVID, we have the ability to do even better work. Because with COVID losses, we have lots of people who in particular, aren't having services, or they're having these little mini micro services or these online services, and it doesn't feel the same. It's not what people need. We know from way back in the caveman days, we have evidence now that there were actually formal funerals, right? We have burials with flowers in them. This has been going on for thousands of years. It's what people do. When someone dies, We need each other. Even the most introverted people needs other people, maybe from a distance, but they need them there at the service, right? So this is where when your client comes in and you've worked through the trauma that other people don't understand, because it really is trauma not to be there when someone dies. For most people, it would be not, it would be assumed that it's not traumatic because you're not there watching it. The reality is the trauma is that you're not there. You can't hold that hand. You can't be there. You can't watch that last breath. And as tough as that last breath is, you're still there. You're watching the body release and that transition. Not being there for that by itself is a trauma. And then the other part of it is we've got folks who are then after the death coming in. I'm hearing them in my online office now. Well, you know, we're going to wait a year for the service. We're going to wait till the headstones put in. We're going to maybe we'll just leave it at what we did. You know, there weren't that many people left who knew them. We're not going to do a service. That's your loved one and they died. And as a therapist, I have the ability to say, "You know what? You sound like you need to mark that death." What would you do if you could create the service that you need and they deserved? And even if it's someone that they didn't get along with, which also makes grief complicated, what kind of service do you need to mark that someone you love or was a big part of your life has died? And then we create that service. In session, sometimes we do a little memorial, especially if then there's a second and a third and a fourth loss, which is unfortunately not unusual in COVID. If it started at a family gathering, then there's going to, where there's one, there's going to be more, right? And for therapists who've lost clients, I, I've heard from several therapists who've had significant numbers of clients fall off their calendar because they died because they live in the worst of the pandemic zones. So we do a little memorial there, but then that leads me into now, how are we going to do a real memorial? 
what do you need? And we plan it. And I give them homework as to, you know, who do you want to include? How do you want to do it? It doesn't matter if it's eight months afterward. That death is still fresh in their mind in some way, shape, or form. Let's give them the memorial they need and let's support them in doing it because they deserve it and they need it. And they need one where people can actually wrap their arms around them. Right? It's also powerful in that you can suggest to clients that there are some basic things that every griever needs and it's okay to raise that white flag and say, I need help. Now, typically that would mean people coming over. Now it might mean people coming and sitting on the lawn. But people who are grieving are not thinking clearly, are not really able to do some of the stuff they need to do. There's a reason we make casseroles when people are dead. There's a reason we have something called funeral potatoes in the South. There really is. It's a dish, right? Everybody knows how to make it. And there's a reason that there's matzo ball soup because you do those things when someone has died to mark the loss and to say, I'm here to nurture you, which is what funeral potatoes do. They nurture and they provide sustenance and they provide some warmth, all of which is necessary when someone's grieving. So I suggest let's, let's think about the things you need. Let's put out the call. Let's sit here in my, you and you're, you're in your home. I'm here. This is our office space now. What do you need? Even if it's basic stuff, like I can't remember to get things taken care of. Fine. Let's figure out how to do it. Let's get out a calendar and let's work on that side by side, but in different spaces so that you feel like you've got some mastery over your life right now. When you and I had talked about the general grief from the pandemic, not just about deaths, but loss of events and um, so many innumerable losses for everyone in different ways, um, we talked a little bit about the Kubler-Ross stages of grief. For the people that didn't hear that podcast episode, can you do kind of a primer on that and talk about it and how you see its application in this circumstance related to pandemic deaths? Kubler-Ross was an amazing woman, and I always preface my talk about her with that. She's the one who first got us talking about death and dying back in the 60s when nobody talked about it. But what she did was describe the process people who were dying were going through. That's what those stages are for. That's why it ends in acceptance. Because when you are told you're dying, there is some anger. There is a bargaining. If I do this better, if I eat all the vegan or all of the kale, by the way, if I'm dying, I'm not eating kale. Just flat out, it's not happening. If I die faster, so much the better. I'm not going to eat kale. Um, you can give me vodka, not kale. Um, so there's bargaining. There's um, some sadness, and eventually you have to accept you're dying because you don't have a way out of this one. If you're dying, you're dying. It's how it is. If you explain that to families who are expecting a death, then they have the chance to use some of that knowledge to allow themselves to feel those feelings. So with COVID, it's applicable if you know someone is going to lose someone because you can also then use that to start inserting how to start grief ahead of time. If they're bargaining, then they're looking at the possibility someone's going to die. So if they do die, what do they need to know? You can work in the, the pre-grief stuff, the anticipatory grief. 
when someone has had a COVID loss, when someone's already dead, they're not going to typically go through Kubler-Ross stages, but they might remember having gone through them in microseconds, not having enough time to complete them, not having time to do them with their loved one, which is how they typically happen. And they're being told by people around them, and unfortunately a significant number of therapists, oh, you haven't had anger yet. Okay, you can't be done with grief because you haven't been angry. You can't be done with grief because you haven't bargained yet. How do you bargain against someone dying when you've already signed for the cremation? That doesn't even begin to make sense. They don't have to be angry. And if they are angry, it may not be about the death. It may be because they couldn't be there or because somehow they're looking at the big system about how COVID got so out of control or whatever it may be. It's not a particular kind of anger. And if they are sad, that's not because they're staging. It's because someone they love has died. So let's stop imposing five stages on people. And let's understand those were descriptive. And let's instead work with folks on recovering and recognizing what secondary losses they're having and what things they need to have said and didn't get to and how to say those things with you as their therapist because you're the safe spot. That's the other fabulous thing about being a grief therapist. And if you can't tell, I love doing grief work because it's where people grow. But truly in all of the therapy we do, whether it's anxiety or depression or PTSD or any of the other things people do, when you are doing grief, you are really the one safe space, the only safe space because people get criticized for how they do grief by their family and by the people closest to them. That's where they get hurt the most. It's not even so much the person died, it's the response they're getting from other people about how they're not doing this right. And you are the place where they can name those people that are continuing to cause hurt and they can vent. And venting is perfectly okay, it doesn't all have to be focused, let them vent. They're getting told stupid stuff, right? It's They don't need to be told they should be glad the person died because they're not on the vent anymore. What they want is that person not to have needed a vent, COVID not to have happened, and to go back to 2019 and start this over with a reset. That's what they want. They don't want to be grateful someone's off a vent. So we need to be those people. We need to say this is the place where you can cuss it out, talk it out, get angry at God, do all the things you need to do because this is not fair. 100,000 plus people have died. That's a lot of people who've had a lot of deaths and you're one of them. And they're also angry because they're hearing from lots of spaces that it's not that big a deal. The pandemic isn't that serious. You know, it's rare. Oh, if they died, it's because they had a secondary problem. Who gives a flying flip that there's a second problem? They wouldn't have died if COVID weren't around. They could have expected another 10 years on average, according to the current research. So they lost their loved one early because of a virus and it's a serious virus and their loved one is dead. So let them be angry about that if they need to, but don't demand that they be angry. Don't lay those five stages on them like it's an expectation. I would like for you to label some of the unhelpful things 
that are said by well-meaning people just so that we can hear them once again and in our brains go, do not say that. Oh my, I have pages and pages and they're also on my website. Some of the highlights and funeral directors join me in this. They have a list and it turns out therapist, grief therapist lists and funeral director lists are pretty much identical because we hear this stuff all the time from the people we're working with. They're in a better place. This is all because of a bigger plan. Um, God only takes the young or the good, which of course makes those of us surviving bad, right? Um, we tell kids that they're the person who died is always watching over them. That means if you have a small child, your child is not going to the bathroom again and is not going to get in the shower again, especially if there are certain developmental stages, because that means somebody is watching them get naked and that's just creepy as I'll get out. Um, we say things like, you should be relieved, or you're young, you can get remarried, or now we know COVID causes miscarriages. It's a second stage, second uh, trimester miscarriage risk, huge risk. So women who are having those miscarriages are saying, oh, but you can have another baby. No, because that was going to be my baby. And if I have another one, it's not going to replace this one. This one already had an identity for me. This one had a place. This one is going to have a nursery, right? Uh, they hear um, things like you should have expected it because it was COVID. They hear that, um, oh my goodness, all the other stuff. I, I heard from two therapists that really I, sh I should have uh, not remarried. And I should have had my second wife's health checked before I got remarried because otherwise I was asking for her to die. You know, I've never asked anyone to die on my, on my watch. Um, and I made her promise when she married me not to die. And that didn't work out so well. So I skipped out on the third one because I didn't want to tempt fate. Right? There's a lot of things people hear and they need to be able to vent it out. Much of it is religiously based. And I'm not sure why, but we always seem to jump to religion. Um, and they're told that they should be grateful because now they're in heaven or now they're an angel. And again, the answer to all of those is, but if they hadn't died, I wouldn't have to be any of those things. What I really want is for them not to have died. Give your clients space to talk about those things and make sure you're not joining in them. As you say that, I can hear... Um, the value in going back to all of our first traineeships or practicums where some supervisor said, before you say anything, consider the value. Is this about you or is this about the client? And again, having had my own experience with grief and with complicated grief, um, the well-meaning comments that made it so much more painful for me and caused me to retreat uh, because it, it was like, I'm not understood here. And now there's something wrong with how I'm doing this or how I'm feeling, or you don't understand. And you don't get me. Right. And it's so painful because you're so, so vulnerable in those moments. Um, and for therapists, you and I have talked about this before, but that there's a lot of value in saying, I know that there's not a lot I can say right now. You know, that, that it's okay to say there's nothing I can say. It's better than saying the wrong thing. And um, what I call at leasting, you know, well, at least they 
live till this age, or at least they were able to make that last trip, or at least they met their grandchild or whatever it is. Um, and that those comments, we need to be so self-aware as clinicians um, to question the value, the meaning, the significance before we say those things. Because to me, it reminds me of like a sea anemone, that the sea anemone could finally be open and and being itself. And then there's like this gentle touch, it goes and it's gone. It's not going to come out again. It's gone. Yeah. If you do grief the first time wrong with someone, they'll never come back and they'll never see another therapist. They're just going to shut down. We don't want to be that person. No, no. And the, the reason we, people say those things is because they're not comfortable. They just, you, you can't do grief work if you're not comfortable with death. If you can't describe death, and re-educate your client about what happened during that dying process. If you can't talk about someone being dead and use the D word, then you should refer out because those are the folks who say this stuff. There's space, there's therapeutic silence. There's big therapeutic silence when someone has died. And when someone's died from a traumatic death like COVID, there's even bigger therapeutic silence. And you have to be able to hold it and not fill it up because it's uncomfortable for you. And you have to be able to not be a solver right there. That doesn't mean you can't leave someone with hope. Doesn't mean you can't say at the end of a session, okay, just want you to know you're not always going to feel this way. We're going to get there. But don't say time's going to get better. Time's going to heal the wounds. Don't say that stuff. It's not time. It's work. Just, I want you to know it's not always going to feel this bad. I know it feels like shit right now. I really do. I know you feel crazy, which is the number one term grievers use. Describe what their brain is feeling like they feel, and I quote, crazy. And they need to know it's not always going to be that way, but they need you to hold that space and that silence and not fill it up and not tell them to be grateful. You tapped into another part of this, you know, this idea also that um, many of us have had COVID related deaths um, ourselves as clinicians, be that of our clients or our loved ones. Um, what, what would you like those clinicians to hear about their own process, about their own healing? Um, I'm thinking basically what, what permissions do you feel like you want to give them? I want them to have permission to take some time off if they need it, but to make sure they're not abandoning the clients who are in the middle of grief because you really, really can't take a break with a grief client, at least initially, unless you've got someone else that they can bond to right away. But take your time. Take even a day or half a day. Let yourself grieve the client. We are not these automatons who can go from one thing to another and not grieve someone who's touched us. And we are not such strict clinicians, not any one of us, I hope, or the people we see don't touch us in some way. Even if I run into someone that I saw as a client 10 years ago and I can't remember their name, when I remember their story, which is how I remember people, I'm gonna remember something important about them almost immediately. And I have brain damage from a stroke, by the way, but I still remember it. I don't want us to pretend that we don't feel that. And so when a client dies, especially of COVID, which is very sudden, and you may not get to say goodbye, 
because you saw them and then you didn't. And it's not like when they were coming to our offices and you could see someone going downhill. They're online with you one day and the next week they're just not there and then they're dead. And that's how that works. Light a candle. Remember what was important about them. Write about them in a memory journal. Um, I keep a journal of success that I put, you know, thank you notes and good moments I've had in my career. At the end of it, I have some of the goodbyes to some of my special clients because those are people that I did good work with and that mattered and they, and I mattered to them, right? I helped them say goodbye to this world. Do something to mark the death and then make yourself take some space. Go outside after you found out about one of those things. Reach out to a colleague. Send me an email, right? Do something so that you're not doing this alone. There's lots of controversy about us, you know, grieving clients or attending funerals or any of that stuff. When you are doing grief work, the rules are a little different. And when you're doing COVID work with clients and you've had some losses, I'm not telling you to tell your other clients, oh, yes, I just lost someone to COVID today. No. But when they say this is just awful, living this pandemic is just atrocious, if you pretend like you haven't been touched by it, you're going to lose that client because they know you're living through it too. That's why our clients check on us. How are you doing? Are you staying well? Um, what is this doing to you? Am I normal? Am I like everybody else you're seeing? They need you to acknowledge there's a pandemic. And they need you to acknowledge that there have been losses around your world too. They need to hear that. When we as clinicians are supporting someone that uh, is coping with this type of death, when do you recommend we really start considering either referring out? I mean, you talked about one of the pieces of like, if you're deeply in grief yourself, if you're spent, you need to refer out. Um, but what are kind of the lines for you where it's like, you know, this person, a grief group would benefit them, or maybe it's time to talk about an SSRI and they need a referral to psychiatry. Like, what are some of your cues that help you know when it's a right time to make those recommendations outside of, you know, the interventions that you've already been talking about? If someone is really isolated, they have nobody around them. They are the only one in their family, um, which is not unusual when we've got deaths occurring in the senior set. Then I try to locate a group that's appropriate for them. There is now, I just founded a Facebook group for people who are grieving and literally have no family. And I love that group because I snuck into it. They let me in for a time and they're positive focused. They're not, we got to grieve forever focused. They're supportive of each other and recovering. Um, if you're going to refer to a grief group, first of all, check them out, go skulk around in them and make sure it's not an unhealthy group. That's got uh, an environment of you got to stay grieving and this is going to take forever and you have to stay sad or you're not really loving. You didn't love that person enough. If someone has a history of depression in the family, and I am hearing that there is more than the, I just can't get out of bed, it's too hard, which is normal in grief, but it goes on for days at a time and they haven't showered in three days, then absolutely it's time for a psychiatric referral. I don't assume someone is depressed, but now that we are all online instead of in person and I can't look at that person's demeanor and posture and gauge whether or not they get up and come to the office, 
then I make the referrals a little quicker. And I have online referrals for those whose insurance would cover it so that they can get in faster. So it, it really depends on what I'm hearing and what the family history is. But I don't take a family history the first couple sessions like I would normally do. When I'm doing grief clients, the first few sessions are purely just tell me your story. Tell me what happened. Let me sit here with you and let me tell you at the end of the session, we're going to get you through this. If you need family history, then that should be on the intake form and then review it on the side. You're offering um, so much wisdom here from your experience. You touched briefly upon kind of the clinician's experience because a lot of the time when um, when we've gone through a significant loss, whether it's a death or something else, we are often encouraged to like work through it um, until we start seeing clients again or we see a client that has that presenting problem. You know, if we're if we're getting divorced and we're still really raw, then maybe it's not the right time to take a couple that's, that's really in the throes of conflict. Um, but in this case, so many of us are grieving right alongside of our clients and you touched upon it. So let's pretend you as a clinician have a significant primary pandemic-related loss and there is no way that you're going to get out of bed tomorrow morning, let alone see the clients that are on your caseload. What do you recommend clinicians do? Because I think there are probably a few that are listening to this now or are kind of listening and are um, with awareness uh, tagging it for future use if they, if they need to. What do they do? How do they find a resource set? Where do they draw the line of like, okay, I, I cannot do this. And then here's what I'm going to do. So I don't abandon my clients because I am spent. I try, I have my, my, and I'm fortunate. We have a large practice. So I have secretaries. I have them reach out because they're trained and reschedule for a few days out. I make sure that they have referrals for some online support. I make sure that they have some homework to do so they can feel like they're prepping for their next appointment with me. So, okay, I can't see you tomorrow, but I'm going to be with you on Thursday. And in the meantime, Jill recommended she's going to send you some emails and then I email out some stuff for them to work on. That also gives me the ability to work on those things with that person when they come online the next time, instead of needing to really pull it all in and have all the full energy for just listening. We're going to work on an activity, but it's a useful grief-related activity, if that makes sense. I try desperately hard not to put off someone who's grieving to somebody else, because sometimes when someone's grieving, we're the only primary relationship they have in that moment. And especially with COVID, we're the only ones because when they're doing Zoom calls with their family and planning stuff, that's not a time where they're going to feel comfortable saying, this is just too hard and I'm really struggling. Right? So we're that person. I try not to cut them off. If I just couldn't do it, then I would make sure I had another grief therapist who was skilled in grief, who matched what that client needed so that they could move on to them and say, look, I'm not feeling good right now. And I really need you to see someone else. And I found this person and they've got an opening. And they can take your insurance or make sure that that transition is in place. Not that you're saying, here, go find someone because they won't. They'll just cut out. 
and they'll never, ever come back. I continually appreciate just your your insight and the clarity with which you convey these things. What are some other recommendations that we can make for clients to help support healthy grieving? So you talked about the importance of um, getting to say what they didn't get to say, or even if they did to the person they've lost. We've talked about the value in talking about the things that were said to them that weren't helpful. We've talked about a memorial service and a way to honor them. What are some other kind of interventions that are in your uh, toolbox that you can share that you found to be particularly helpful in encouraging um, healthy processing, um, whether related to COVID grief or not? Some of the basics, um, grievers tend to stay inside. Um, depressed people do too, but grievers more so because inside is safer. It's not that they don't want to, they don't have the energy to get up. It's just safer to be inside walls. So I make them go outside, even if it's just in the backyard or if they live in a high rise outside on the balcony or stick their head out the window, they need sunshine because that helps reset their brain. Um, we work on acknowledging the physical issues that are coming up and I make sure they get those addressed because people who are grieving tend to become sick faster and with COVID they're at more risk of getting sick. So I make them call their doctor and do a check-in, um, particularly with COVID. Um, I make sure that they are exercising and caveat to that now after everything that's gone on in Minneapolis for my African-American clients I no longer recommend going out for fast walks or runs. Um, for safety purposes, I recommend that they find a way to exercise in the home, in the backyard, with friends, in a way that feels safe to them, because I don't want to compound the problem. Um, and I'm fully aware of just how dangerous that can feel to some people right now. Um, but I do recommend exercise. And I recommend that they look at what they're eating and allow themselves to eat all the, the lousy carbs, but to eat some protein and some green stuff on top of it. My, my typical is you can eat the ice cream, put the broccoli on it, right? And maybe a side of pepperoni or something, something to get some protein in your body, something to get some green and some roughage in there. Because if you're physically feeling like crap, you can't do the stuff that's making you emotionally feel like crap. You have to have a balance in all of that. I also acknowledge that they're not sleeping and I work with them on finding a way around that because grievers don't sleep and COVID grievers in particular aren't sleeping because they're having nightmares. And then I do a lot of journaling with them and we journal about the nightmares and then address those nightmares, which are usually centered around what they didn't see during the dying process. And I re-educate them about the dying process. Yeah, I know that you were hearing about people struggling on intubation. You need to know they were sedated. And so they weren't feeling it and that they did have staff around them and that this is how the transition would have happened. And this is what happened at the end. And yes, they could hear you if you were on the phone with them. Their brain would have recognized that. We know that from the research. So a lot of the re-education process, I make sure I'm doing that with them so that they're hearing about it and then they're applying that to their brain before they go to bed. So I prep them for bedtime so that they can hopefully get at least a little bit more sleep and then encourage them to nap so that they're not sleep deprived because you're already feeling a little snappy at people and it doesn't help when you're sleep deprived because then you really will take someone's head off and then you feel worse and you get into that lousy cycle 
of nothing feels right and you're not good, right? And I work with them on how to respond back to people who are telling them how to grieve so that they have some responses instead of absorbing the nonsense that they're being told. Why don't you name some of those responses so that we can help prepare our clients for the ones that are grief expert approved? Oh my, see, I usually do, this is where it helps to be in the office, three sets of responses. So there's the, oh my goodness, I feel so bad that your loved one died. I'm, I'm just feeling so terrible about that. And then usually those folks launch into, it's so hard for me. I'm just really struggling with how they died too. And, and it turns the griever into a caregiver instantaneously. And grievers don't have energy as it is. So for someone that they're very close to, it's something along the lines of, in the words they're comfortable with, you know, I know it's hard for you too, and I really hope you have someone who can help you with that because I really need to take care of me right now. And if that's hard for you, then we can talk another day. I love you very much, but I can't talk right now. Click. Right? If it's somebody that you don't know that well or you're not that close to, it's more of a, I know this is hard, but I really need to preserve my energy for myself. So if you're struggling, find someone else to talk to about it and I can see you on another day. A little more blunt, a little more open. Don't absorb the need to take care of someone else. When they hear they're in a better place, then it's more of, you know, I know you feel that way, but I really wish they were just here. So let's just leave that alone. Let's not go there. If it's, you know, if you could just put this in God's hands or all, whatever your belief system's hands are, which is what people are here a lot, you, you should just give this up to the higher power. Then the response is something like, you know, this is my loss right now and I'm dealing with it. And that's not helpful. Because if that greater power is the one that caused this loss, I'm not feeling all that cozy and comfy with them right now. And no, I don't want to go to church or temple or whatever. I, I need to not be there right now. There has to be a way for our clients to feel like they don't have to absorb it. And I talk with my clients about the grief card. Like just throw it down like you got the biggest ace of spades you've ever had in Vegas. Nope, not going to do it. This is my way of doing grief and I don't need your input right now. Um, thank you for that. Thank you for shedding some light. Um, Jill, we have flown through an hour already. Um, for our listeners that want to learn more about this particular topic of pandemic, pandemic related deaths, and also just supporting people in grief, what are some resources that you recommend? Um, what websites, what books, please share with us? I happen to love the Grief Recovery Institute. You can find them online. They have a whole series of books for coping with grief, including one for children that's written for the adults in terms of not making grief a pathology for kids. I do have some kids grief books as well online on Amazon and on my website, which is jilljohnsonyoung.com because I'm a .com now. How cool is that? Um, that doesn't happen for social workers very often. Just let me tell you that. And um, I also like um, a lot of the material that's actually put out by the funeral industry. They have a lot of books or a lot of um, kind of workbook things on preparing for death. They call it having the difficult conversations. 
which are really good if you've got someone who's anticipating a death, but also good for afterward. Um, there's a program called Be Remembered, which is where people can put their memories of their loved one in. And if someone's not dying yet, they can put their own memories in. Um, and I really like folks to find the healthy online groups. And I would really strongly recommend that as a grief therapist, a grief provider, you look for them. There are some specific to child loss, some specific to sibling loss, um, pet loss. I have those actually on my website and that's not an ad for me. It's I've broken them down into about 10 different categories because so many losses are so ignored and there are COVID related resources on there as well. But if you're dealing with someone who's had a, an out of order loss in addition to a COVID loss, or it's a sibling who died in addition to it being a COVID loss, those are special kind of losses because we don't have titles for those folks. And they need to know that their loss counts just as much as the next person's. Thank you, Jill. And please, for our people who want to get in touch with you, what is your email address? It's jilljohnsonyoung at gmail.com. You have shared so much information um, that I think brings a lot of clinicians peace and some confidence because I know this is a topic that makes us feel uneasy because we don't want to do it wrong. It's too delicate. Um, thank you so much. Thank you for everything you do for the industry. Thank you for being a voice to help guide us during this time. I'm grateful that you spent this time with us today. Thank you for having me. And I hope if anyone needs help, they reach out. You can't do it wrong if you just listen. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.